This is episode 12 of Extraordinary Women Radio. Welcome to Extraordinary Women Radio. I am your host, Cami Gellner. Women are being called to live with voice, vitality, and vigor. Each month, join me for wisdom-filled interviews with extraordinary women living out loud and making a difference in our world. Their stories will uplift, inspire, and spark your own purpose-driven journey. Hello, my extraordinary women friends. One of the things that I've really claimed in my business is that I'm a connector. I love to build community. I love to meet fabulous women and learn their stories. That's certainly what prompted me to saying yes to Extraordinary Women Radio and even to my Extraordinary Women event series that I run. I am always meeting, connecting, learning more, introducing great women to great women, and building real relationships in my world. And that makes Cammie's world a really happy one. And recently, one of those connections opened a new door for me. I'm super excited to share that I partnered with the Colorado Women Hall of Fame to tell the stories of many of the women who have been inducted into the Colorado Women Hall of Fame. And today's episode with Jill Tijin is the first of what I hope to be many interviews with a Colorado Hall of Famer inductee. I will intersperse these interviews amongst the many interviews with wildly successful women from around the world to help get their stories heard. The Colorado Women's Hall of Fame celebrates Colorado's extraordinary women. Yes, that's their tagline. So you can see why it's such a great fit for Extraordinary Women Radio. The organization recognizes, honors, and preserves the contributions of trailblazing Colorado women. To learn more about the Colorado Women Hall of Fame, you can check it out on their website, which is cogreatwomen.org. So go check it out, take a look at it, see some of the amazing women who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. And if you know of a woman who should be nominated, they, they are actually in the process of taking nominations up through August, I believe. So go check it out and um, look at some of the women that are coming down our pipeline. And I'm especially excited about today's guest, a Colorado Women Hall of Famer, Jill Tejan, because we share a huge love for telling women's stories. In fact, Jill has written a whole book about it and has more books flowing within her. I'm guessing most of us have seen Hidden Figures. So let's just kind of go to that place for a moment. Such a great movie, you know, women that were doing amazing things and no one knew about it, right? And I've often thought about that after seeing this movie is how many other untold stories are out there that we just don't know. Well, Jill actually had the same premonition long before this movie came out, and she has made a whole lifetime of uncovering stories just like this, making sure women's stories are told and shared. Her best-selling book, Her Story, A Timeline of Women Who Changed America, is a -a one-of-a-kind illustrated timeline highlighting the awesome, varied, and often unrecognized contributions of American women throughout U.S. history beginning all the way back in the 1500s and spanning all the way through 2011. You're going to love Jill and her story. Jill is not only a best-selling award-winning author, she's a national speaker and an electrical engineer. After 40 years in the electrical utility industry, she took the leap to focus on women's advocacy all around the world. She blogs for HuffPost and has more Her Story books underway. So let's dig in, let's learn about her, and let's meet Jill. Well, welcome, Jill. First of all, I want to congratulate you on being a Colorado Women Hall of Fame inductee. What an honor. 
Oh, it's one of my most treasured honors. I, I still have actually a hard time believing it. it. It really was meaningful and remains meaningful for me. How did that feel when you won that award? Um, like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> right? Oh, that's awesome. That's totally awesome. I've nominated so many women for so many awards. And when it was first suggested to me that I was that kind of material, I just went, well, I wouldn't nominate me. But <laughs> no, it's, it's, and, and what I have realized since then, in fact, I had a, a key realization last year is that I, I really actually am the person that other people think that I am. And I can do the things that... I'm credited with doing. So you get to be you and really own that, that light that's shining on you for that award. Yes. That's good. That's good. So I know you have so many stories to share, but I want to start with you first. So tell, tell me about the evolution of, of you from engineer to women's advocate. What made you take that leap? Well, I don't know that I took a leap as much as it evolved. Okay, so tell us about that. And that is that I have been very active in an organization called the Society of Women Engineers mm -hmm. for almost 40 years now. In fact, I served as national president in 91-92. Okay. And in 1987, my very dear friend, Alexis Swoboda, went to the national convention in, in Kansas City and came back to Denver and said, Jill, I've heard about this idea that I think we should implement in Colorado. And she said, it's an essay contest on great women in engineering and science. Mm -hmm. And as I said to Alexis, Alexis, that is a great idea. Right. That's what I always said. And then I said in 1987... So who are they? Because in 1987, I knew one historical woman, engineer or scientist, anywhere in the world. And when I ask my audiences that question, they always know the answer. It's Marie Curie. Okay. But if you're going to do an essay contest for all the sixth graders in Colorado and Wyoming, and you need, this was in 1987 or 1988, by the time we actually got it off the ground, you have to send flyers with people's name on it. You have to have done the research so you can judge the essays. And so I started learning about all of these women, these scientific and engineering women that I didn't know anything about. And then in 1988, I was elected to the National Board of the Society of Women Engineers. And at the first meeting, the president held up the nomination forms for the National Medal of Science and National Medal of Technology, which I had never heard of, the U.S. equivalent of the Nobel Prize awarded mm -hmm. by the president of the United States. Oh, wow. He said, who's going to submit nominations? 17 women in that room, and no one raised her hand. So I did. So you said, I, I've got to step up here. I said, somebody's got to do this. And if nobody else is going to do it, I will do it. Right. And I had my first success in a major nomination like that in September of 1991. Admiral Grace Murray Hopper received the National Medal of Technology because of mine. Well, I did the nomination. It wasn't because of my nomination. I mean, you had the, the, right. You made I the nomination. The right, I right. Conduit. And she was very frail by that point in time and unable or unwilling to go to the White House. So she asked me to receive her National Medal of Technology 
from the first President Bush in the White House Rose Garden. And I, I was hooked. You, I mean, you were there. That was I it, was, huh? I was there. I was hooked. Then Alexis found the National Women's Hall of Fame based in Seneca Falls, New York, the birthplace of women's rights. We looked at who had been inducted and we went, oh, my goodness, where are the STEM women? <laughs> and we made it our mission to nominate them. And Admiral Hopper was my first successful nominee in 1994. And including the five nominees that I have successful this fall, that will be a total of 30 women that I've nominated to the National Women's Hall of Fame. So it's, it's a process. It's like a snowball. Right. Snowball starts. And it all starts with, an, for me, an essay contest for the Society of Women Engineers on Great Women in Engineering and Science that then evolved into nominations that evolved into books that evolved into more books that evolved into taking over my life. Right. So that I am now one of the top women's historians in the country, uh. not just scientific and technical women, but all women. And a, I mean, I have a total passion for it. It's something I want to do. And what I also learned in this process is that there weren't very many women in engineering. Right. right. And so I became a women's advocate for getting more women into engineering. That's primarily what the Society of Women Engineers does. It also encourages women who are in the career. And then so there, there are these parallel things that are happening that basically put me into a position to become a women's advocate and a historian of women, both in the U.S. and now actually with my projects I'm now working on or project I'm now working on locally. And so, and, and the fascinating, one of the fascinating things for me is that those skills that I developed as an engineer, I use. Mm. As, as, as an advocate, you use those skills. Uh, well, an... and, and to write these books. Right. I use all of my spreadsheet skills. I use research skills. I use problem-solving skills. I use creativity skills. I mean, I've, I'm an engineer because I like to solve problems. Well, right. putting right. a book together is, is a series of problems. Oh, let me tell you, I know, sister. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand that. And, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's, I love when you can take skill sets from one place in your life and transform those into using them in a different way in your life. And it's, it's, it's so powerful. And, and, you know, it's the gifts, the strengths of who you are, right? It's that, that very essence of you, you're able to bring forward into you as, as an author, as an advocate, um, making a difference in, in the, the lives of sharing the, the stories in the lives of other women, you right. know, and I'm also a speaker and yeah. I'm trained by my first employer, Duke Power, to be a member of their Speakers Bureau. And then in my engineering career, I served as an expert witness. Every time I got on the stand, I got retrained. Right. So all of that skill set, the A, the ability to talk, but B, the ability to answer questions, also yeah. was directly transferable. Right. From my engineering career. Right. No, it's, it's, I, what I tell people now is that whenever you learn a skill, and I mean, in the old days, it was like, do, when you merged and figured out how to do mailing labels. 
then you think I'm never going to use the skill again. Wrong. <laughs> it comes about in another way, another, you know, just a different face and frame, if you will. Always. The yeah. skills that you learn, they're transferable across professions or transferable against uh, uh, for everything. I mean, they're, they, they always come in handy. I mean, sometimes it's, it's unbelievable. The skills I learned as a volunteer that I used yeah. A in my career and, and B in other volunteer organizations. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, I always believe that the universe very strategically puts all these different lessons and learnings and experiences in our, in our pathway so that we end up doing what we're supposed to be doing in our life. Um, you know, that, you know, that, that, Yes. That purpose of what we stand for, but in order to be really good at that purpose that we we stand for, we have to have all these different experiences and skill sets that come along the way. So, being able to just bring those forward is always a beautiful thing. Absolutely, and and I've actually asked some of my let's call them I, I have quite a village, and I've asked people in my village why did I have to be an engineer in order to be a women's advocate. And they just look at me and say, well, Jill, that's something you're just going to have to figure out for yourself. Right. So, so I finally, I finally did because it's actually pretty obvious. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. It's just like now you're, you're able to bring women into the, the STEMS world and really have a, a strong understanding of that. Right. And it also gave me a tremendous spine. It gave mm-hmm. me an ability to withstand rejection. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gave me an, and a, the confidence that I have. And as we've already discussed, the knowledge base and the skill set base that I have, all of which I need right. in order to move into this other area. Yeah. Of well, it's, 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 so I can relate to this in such a beautiful way. I, um, when I was young and it was a single mom and needed to put food on the, the table for my son, um, in fact, I just, I, we were talking about this, you know, how you, you dig in and you figure out ways to make things work. Well, I became an engineer tech in an oil and gas company. And yeah. that's what put me through school was that, that job, which played, paid really well as, you know, as a young girl. And I, you know, I was, um, I was using Excel or it was an Excel. It was Microsoft. It was a one, two, three. It was Lotus one, two, three. Yeah. On this big old honking huge computer that I was, you know, it was hilarious. And I, so I learned all those skill sets early on and I was running economics on oil and gas wells and all these different things that would take me eventually into an executive career um, in the oil and gas industry, which would eventually take me into, um, you know, more of a, I was doing more marketing kind of oriented p- pieces and really, um, you know, th- my, my career just evolved from that, you know, that, that early engineer tech work, if you will. And, you know, when I made that big leap into running my own business and being a coach and helping people figure out what they wanted to do next in their life and get their voice out into the world, all those skill sets of, math and economics and, you know, all that, that came forward in such a beautiful way that that's what I love to see happen is when people's lives continue to unfold just like that in a way that you get to what you're supposed to be doing eventually. And you have all the tools and skill sets to make that happen. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating to me that that's what you say, because I can see the path. You can only see it in, well, I can only see it in retrospect. Oh, I, I can only see it in, in retrospect either. <laughs> so it's like, if I would have looked at it back then, I would have, I would have never seen this pathway that I was going down. So it's, that is so, so true. So I have a question. So with hidden figures, I mean, that's, that was, you know, such a great story and such a topic right now. And um, in fact, you know, I, I'm part of the, the Women's Foundation of Colorado and we've got Octavia Spencer coming to Colorado in September to be the keynote speaker. So, you know, that whole story is really top of mind, you know, the hidden figures and the women that really were not seen. Why is it that so many women and what you've discovered in your book is that, you know, you've uncovered all these beautiful stories of women that their stories need to be told. Why is it that those stories have gotten, you know, kind of underneath the covers or, or, or hidden, right? What, what is it, do you believe? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning, meaning in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, women weren't educated. White women weren't educated, never mind in the U.S., never mind slave women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so who was writing all along, who was writing the history? Men were writing the history. Right. And so who were men writing about? They were writing about other men. I mean, Queen Elizabeth is kind of the one of the, the big figures early on in British history. I mean, they couldn't not write about her. Right. <laughs> right. Problem. Mm -hmm. And so when women were not educated, and then even in the early history of the U.S., in the year 1800, the per capita birth rate for women in the U.S. was 7.04. And so women didn't have time unless right. they had to support their families as a single mom, even back then. Mm -hmm. But there were all kinds of barriers in their way. They were denied the right to an education. I mean, in 1848, at that first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York, the grievances that were listed, I mean, they didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the right, if they had a job, their wages were not their own. They were denied the right to an education. They were denied rights to Everything, owning land, owning property, I mean, everything. Right. And so that whole issue of rights had to be resolved first. Before, before the stories could be told. Right, before women could move forward and before their stories could be told. And really, it was the second wave of feminism, the one that started in the 1960s, when women started having a voice and when women started recording their history. There are women before... I mean, I now know some of them. I don't know all of them. I, I go different places and I speak. I speak all over the country and I'll go to a place and they'll say, well, you don't have so-and-so in your book. And I'll go, I never heard of so-and-so. I mean, because that's how little we know the history and that's how little we've been recorded. Thank goodness I went to Connecticut and they said, well, you must have Prudence Crandall in your book. And thank goodness we have Prudence Crandall in our book because she's now the 1995 named the Connecticut state heroine. Ah. Uh, but we don't, I mean, people outside of Connecticut don't know that. That's and right. So what I have found over the years now that I've been doing this is when you start telling women's stories, women no longer feel a, that they're in a vacuum B, that no one has done it before them. There actually are role models and people to look up to and to see that they have persevered 
in spite of all of the obstacles that were put in their way. I mean, just one thought more on this topic. Yeah. Please. There were 300 people, men and women, at the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. That fight took 72 years. Only one of the women who was at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 was alive. Ah. And so those women fought and fought and fought and fought their whole lives. And it's important to tell their stories. And it's important for people to know today that they persevered and kept carrying on and worked for this right that in the end, because even even this one woman who was alive, she didn't get to vote either because she was 90. Right. And, and that was a very older age at that point in time. And she was frail and sick. But these women fought and fought and fought and fought for us to have these rights and privileges. So we need to know their stories and we need to honor them. And we're not done, by the way. So we have to keep on with these battles and these fights. And that's why we have to tell these stories. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's such strength in that. As, as you think back all, to all of the different stories that you have gathered and told over the years, um, do you have a favorite that really exemplifies the journey of women and how she made a difference in our world? Well, for me, this whole process has been epitomized by Admiral Grace Murray Hopper, whom I already mentioned. Mm -hmm. My first successful nomination for the National Medal of Technology, a woman I had not heard of until we started doing the research Mm -hmm. for the essay contest. My first successful nomination to the National Women's Hall of Fame. And by the way, what she did was she invented the computer compiler. And that is the software that allows us to talk to a computer in human languages and not the zeros and ones that a computer understands. So she made possible the laptops that we're using for this conversation. Ah. She made possible the iPad. She made possible the iPhone. She made possible all of the programming languages that actually we don't even see anymore. She made possible all those apps that actually do all that programming for us so that we can just click on the weather channel icon and up comes the weather for wherever we live, which has a tremendous back end that we don't even see that allows all of that to happen. So that foundation started with what she created in that compiler. Yes. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. So one of the things I've heard you say is that women are more alike than different around the world. And I think that that's really interesting that, that, and and I actually had the same conversation with another, on another episode with Barbara Bauer just recently. Tell us more about your thoughts on this. What characteristics have you seen in women that really carry across all cultures and all boundaries? What's different? Well, really, Almost all women want the same thing, and that's safety and security for themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, so they want an education for themselves, they want an education for their children, they want an opportunity to be themselves, to 
be able to use the talents that they were given while they're on this planet and not to have those abilities taken away. Right. And, and I think that's probably true for everyone. I'm pretty new to this part of this discussion. I've only recently really in the past couple of years started to think in those terms because really with women working for peace around the world, that's what they're working for. They're working for an ability for everyone to reach their full potential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and as you said, it's, it's looking out for their families. It's looking out for um, the people around them that they care about, um, that they work hard to do what they do, right? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I heard years ago, and this still sounds stunning to me, and I think it was Ethiopia, that the primary food source for many of those families was peanuts. Mm -hmm. And that it took something like two days or a week to grind enough peanuts to make peanut butter. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually three days for their family for the next week. Okay. So they're spending three days of their time <laughs> in a week to grind peanuts into peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And then someone actually provides them with, and I don't know what the right name of this machine is, but a peanut butter making machine, <laughs> right? a grinder of some sort that in 45 minutes does what it's been taking them three days to do. Right. So what do those women, women do with that extra time? Mm -hmm. They learn to read. They establish businesses. They do other things that actually make use of their talent. Right. Because that they're then realizing more of their potential. Right. Right. So that, that again, it's the technology enabling um, new, new ways of spending time and the women used it in a very wise way to keep growing and evolving and, and making life better for their family. Right. And that's why I am such a big supporter of an organization that's called Engineers Without Borders. Mm -hmm. who's, they have two primary focuses, or they used to have two primary focuses. One is what are called water conveying systems, which in simple terms are pipes and pumps. Right. And then water filtration systems. Mm -hmm. Water filtration systems reduce water contamination, reduce illness, contribute to the health of the community. And then water conveying systems, pipes and pumps means if you have pipes and pumps, that means the girls and the women don't have to spend their days Spending Walking right. to water, yes. bringing it back as water mules, M-U-L-E-S. I mean, that kind of an organization demonstrates the value of science, technology, engineering, and math to girls in a way that many other examples don't do with the same visceral effect. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I ha have already mentioned Barbara Bauer, and we talked about that very thing in, in, in Myanmar, and she was in Myanmar for several years, and, and how that could s make such a difference in helping change lives by giving opening up that time where they were hauling water to uh, enabling women to spend their time on other things.
Right. And Barb is a friend, Barbara Bauer is a friend of mine. Oh, so. good. So I was going to say, if you don't know Barbara, you no, need no, to know no, her, but of course her. you know her. I know her. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. So I know one of the things you're really passionate about is helping women get, or helping to get women on U.S. currency. Tell us a little bit more about that. In, let's see if I can get these years right. In 2014, I was contacted by womenon20s.org. Uh-huh. and their executive director and the president of the board. And they asked me, I was at that point in time president of the board of directors of the National Women's Hall of Fame. And they asked me for whatever assistance I could provide. And A, I could, I could um, actually provide, not A, I could provide a lot of assistance. I was president of the board of the National Women's Hall of Fame, and I had written her story, A Timeline of the Women Who Changed America. So I knew who the women were. I had access to information. So I served on the advisory board for Women on 20s. I wrote the first draft of the women who were then entered into the voting pool from which Harriet Tubman emerged as the woman of choice to be on the $20 bill with approximately mm-hmm. 600,000 votes cast. Right. And then I became CEO of the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2015 and was able to invite the United States Treasurer, Rosie Rios, to come to Seneca Falls to do a town hall meeting to get input on to who should be on the currency when it should happen, how it should happen. And so I was very pleased to do that, although Senator Schumer took credit for doing it. I actually (laughs) invited her and did all of the paperwork, and then he wanted to take credit, so, you know, he gets to get the credit. And so we had this fabulous town hall meeting in Seneca Falls, and then in April of 2016, the announcement came that Harriet Tubman would be on the $20 bill. And by the way, none of this was guaranteed or predisposed. There were a lot of iterations along the way. You may remember the $10 bill with Alexander Hamilton on it and the uproar from Hamilton's descendants. And it's really not reasonable anyway. He's the father of the United States Treasury. Why should you take him off the $10 bill? Right. Right. So Harriet Tubman ended up on the the 20. There are five women that will be on the back of the 10, and um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Marian Anderson, and Martin Luther King Jr. on the back of the $5 bill. And on the back of the 10 is Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul, and Sojourner Truth. And I am just ecstatic to have played... A part in that, I will say my part was small, but helpful. Yeah. And how I'm, and then I, I mentioned to you in the, before we got on the air, the, that I ended up on the BBC. And that was in April, I think the day after the currency was announced. And I was asked a question or the, the tone of the conversation at that point, because this was a radio program where they were attempting to get multiple different points of view, people that didn't agree with each other. And after I said how exciting it was to have these women on the 20, the 10, and the 5, one of the other people on the radio program said, well, this doesn't fix anything. You know, this isn't going to fix racial issues in the United States. 
Well, I never said I was going to fix racial and gender issues in the United States. I just think it's a nice, positive step along the way because we better do something to take start taking those steps or to continue taking those steps. And no, I don't think it's going to fix everything. Right. Right. And I think what you're, I mean, when you think about the contributions you have made and getting women recognized, you know, by nominating them, by sharing their stories in your book, by helping put them on their face on our U.S. US currency, it's raising the profile each step of the way. And I, for one, believe you should be really, really proud of the, you know, the, the, what you have contributed to this. How, how, I mean, just, I want you to just own that for me as we're on here is, is, is owning that, what you have done, what you've contributed. Um, how does that feel? It feels great because after so many years of being the only, Mm -hmm. most of my career, not all of it, but most of it, I have been the only I right. sit on two corporate boards. I've been on one for 20 years, and except for nine of those years, I have been the only. On my other corporate board, I was the only for five years. And to be able to elevate other women, and you may be familiar with the saying, but Madeleine Albright said, Madeleine Albright, who wrote the foreword to her story, A Timeline of the Women Who Changed America, said... There's a special place in hell for women who do not help other women. Right, right. And so I feel that I've done, I mean, I've done many, many things to this point in time. I'm not done. Right. I mean, there's still a lot more to do in terms of raising awareness. I blog weekly for the Huffington Post. I generally write about five women. I have a little quiz at the beginning of the blog with a little matching exercise And I pick a topic that's of interest to me. Last week, I happened to meet a woman who went to college with Madeleine Albright at Wellesley. So my blog last week was five women who graduated from Wellesley who are in my book who made a significant impact. Right, right. So whatever topic interests me, because one of the other issues and issues is not the right word, but one of the other things that Charlotte Waisman, my co-author, and I were trying to do was to ensure that any woman who picked up her story would be able to open up the book and find a woman like her. Mm, Nice. So there are two indexes in the back of the book. One is alphabetical and one is by professions so that people can relate they can identify right. with these women and what their stories were because it's very, very important to see women like me. Right. That's, that's where the inspiration, the sparks happen and they go, oh, I could do that too, right? Yeah. And it's so weird because I've, I've given so many talks, but early on we did um, – a book launch at the Boulder Bookstore, and one woman in the audience raised her hand, and I've seen this happen several times since then, and she said, I'm an educator. Do you have any educators in the book? Like we wouldn't. Right. You know, that we would have forgotten them. <laughs> How did 
did you go about choosing? I mean, when you started finding all of the different stories that were out there, how did you go about choosing who you were going to put in your book? Well, we set criteria um, at the beginning. And the criteria were a woman who was a first, like Madeleine Albright was the first female secretary of state, mm-hmm. a woman who could provide an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And the example I like to use there is Margaret Knight, who in 1870 got the patent for the square bottom paper bag, the grocery bag. Okay. And then a woman who was outstanding in her field of accomplishment, and the example I like to use there is Maria Tallchief, who was a ballet dancer, Native American ballet dancer. Okay. And then the fourth criteria was women who contributed significantly to our standard of living and okay. quality of life. Okay. Wow. And then our supplemental rule was that the woman had to have done it on her own without her father's or her husband's or her brother's money. Mm-hmm. And then we broke our rules whenever we needed to. <laughs> yeah. It's like this woman needs to be in this. We Catherine need to tell Graham. this story. Right. Catherine Graham, who broke Watergate, who published the Pentagon Papers, inherited the paper. Well, she inherited it when her husband committed suicide, but he had inherited it from her father because there was no expectation whatsoever at all that it would pass from her father to her because she was a woman. Ah. But then she made those decisions. She took the action. She, she, was, she was fabulous. She was, uh, I mean, what a backbone that woman had. Yeah. And so, um, yes, we had criteria and, and we learned about so many women. I estimate we, we probably looked at 3000 women in the course of narrowing it down to just under 900. Wow. And I mean, we turned over every rock that we could and then people would bring us women. Oh, I'm sure. You know, they would, they would say, one of Charlotte's friends said, you have to put Effa Manley in the book and as, as I like to say when I speak, you know, we basically said, Effa who? Right. I mean, we could have said who is Effa, but Effa Manley was the first woman who was in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Ah. She owned one of the Negro Baseball Leagues, the mm-hmm. Newark Eagles, I think was the name of it, in the 30s. I mean, she, she ran it. She owned it. She ran it. She did everything for them. And once we knew that... Once she was brought to our attention, then we put her in. And I remember saying to Charlotte, well, of course, we're going to put in Gertrude Elion. And Charlotte said, I've never heard of Gertrude Elion. I said, Charlotte, she won the Nobel Prize in 1988 in physiology <laughs> or medicine. She developed the first effective childhood leukemia drug, which when I spoke in Fort Collins at CSU last fall, One of the women who was there, the faculty advisor said, my daughter took that drug. That's why she's still here today. Mm. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, that linkage and that information and all of that has to be, we, we have to tell these stories. We have to demonstrate that women are capable because when we show men and women that women are capable we actually raise all the boats actually rise on that tide. Right. And I think that's a really important thing is, is that when we empower women, when we tell their stories, it raises 
life for everyone. Correct. And I think that's, that's so true. So I know a lot of people are going to be running out to buy her story, a timeline of women who changed America. Um, so I'm excited to hear back from our listeners on what stories were their favorites and, and what, you know, jazzed them the most about that. Tell us a little bit about how you mentor and guide women today. Oh, I actually have several women that I mentor. I actually have a pretty good story from it's Friday a week ago. So Friday, I think it was the ninth. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm mentoring a young woman. She's a PhD student in uh, chemical and biological engineering. She asked me to be her mentor. She had established uh, a women in science and engineering group for graduate students, and she was having a bad day. I mean, her experiments haven't been working. She's been working on her PhD for a long time. We sat and talked for an hour via Skype because she's now at the University of Minnesota. And I gave her some pointers. And it's so fascinating because our lives parallel. Mm -hmm. Almost every time she's wrestling with some issue, I am either wrestling with the same issue Mm -hmm. or have just finished wrestling. Isn't that true? Ground which that week I'd actually been dealing on this exact issue. And so we went through she all kinds of things that she was dealing with. And then on Tuesday, I got an email that said, my experiment worked. Ooh. Ooh. She said, I'm going to get a PhD. And she's actually at a conference right now where she's presenting the results. Oh, that's fantastic. Her experiment finally worked last week. I am so jazzed for her and so excited. And probably one of the most important things that I have tried to do with her is she has, which many, many women have, it's actually got a name, the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Someday everyone else is going to find out that I don't really know what I'm doing. Right. Well, she doesn't know what she's doing. And she is very capable and she's very smart. Right. And that is one of the most important things that I have been working on with her because, you know, I say you deserve good things and you're working really hard and I'm glad your experiment works and thank God because you deserve it. Right. To work. Right. So what advice do you give women um, when they are experiencing that imposter syndrome? Because that is such a, uh, that happens, right? And it's, it's, what, what do you tell women? How do you help them through that? I tell them now, and this is probably a little bit earlier than the three pearls of wisdom I'm supposed to give at the end, but (laughs) in, in her story, a timeline of the women who changed America early, early on. I was asked, what were the commonalities of the women in the book? And a bolt of lightning basically hit me. And I said, it's passion, determination, and persistence. Mm -hmm. It's passion is finding the thing that you want to do, you are meant to do, you are driven to do. Determination is the fact that you're going to do it in spite of. (laughs) You make that decision, you're going for it. (laughs) Right. You know, in spite of the fact that women don't do this, in spite of the fact that you can't do this, in spite of the fact that no one's ever done it before, in spite of the fact that it won't possibly work, in spite of whatever it is. And then persistence is, okay, it doesn't work the first time. So you try something else. And it doesn't work the second time. And you try something else. And Thomas Edison took a thousand times to get to the light bulb. Right. 
Right. So keeping at it, that stick to itiveness. Right. And so the, that is just really, really such an important lesson. I was, I was mentoring some young ladies last summer in a, in, let's just call it a speed mentoring format. Mm-hmm. And this young woman said to me, one of the young women said to me, I really like programming and I want to be a computer scientist. And I said, does your computer program always work the first time? And she said, no. Never probably, right? Mine never did. Right. When I was in college, mine never did. And we mm-hmm. actually had a limit after six, our grades, you know, got, we got points deducted if it didn't work after the sixth time. And she said, yeah, I get really, really frustrated and I want to give up. And I said, sweetheart, <laughs> yep. this is going to be your life experience. Right. You better it's, it's, figure out how not to give up. Right. Right. And the more we get practice at that, the more we can say, you know what, you keep at it and you say, this is going to work. That's, that's when the breakthroughs happen. Absolutely. Because yeah. you, you just keep on keeping on. And I was actually working on something the past two days. It's part of a book proposal that's getting ready to be submitted. I needed a list of all the women in the book. I fought with Excel for long enough. I got it over to Word where I needed it, but there was still a tremendous amount of editing to do. I couldn't figure out any slick way to do it. So I did it the hard way. Right. But it's done because right. it had to be done. Right. Right. And I think that's a good point because sometimes it isn't that straight line, that straight pathway that to where we're going. It's in fact, it's rarely is this straight pathway. It's usually this curvy pathway that's going to take us in ways that we never thought it would. But that that journey is what helps us grow and evolve and discover things that we may not have discovered anyway, if we would have had that straight pathway. In 1994, I went into counseling when my first husband said he was moving out. Mm -hmm. And I tell people now that that's really when I started waking up and started being conscious about the things that I was doing and where I was going with my life. However, if you had told me in 1994 that this is what I would be doing in 2017, right? (laughs) I would have rolled on the floor laughing so hard because I wouldn't have been able to stay upright. Right. I would have been laughing so hard. I would have never, never, ever believed it. Yes, I totally get that because I'm in the same boat. It's like, you know, if you would have told me even 10 years ago that I'm doing today what I'm doing, I would have done the same thing. I would have rolled fallen down on the floor and laughed and said, I'm a corporate girl. What do you mean? Um, so totally get that. And um, I love the, the beauty that life brings us when we open ourselves up to the possibilities of what really wants to unfold for us and, you know, giving us different meaning. I mean, I think the work that you do today is, has got so much meaning to it and is so important that, you know, you were guided to get there. In some way, shape, or form, right? It was like, this is where you're going. There's absolutely no question. I didn't know I was being guided. I can certainly see it as we already discussed in retrospect. Right, right. So what are your next projects? What, 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 tell us a little bit about what's in front of you. Well, the book proposal I was working on yesterday and Sunday and today, which is supposed to go to an interested publisher next week. Yes, yes. Is her story a timeline of the women who changed the movies? 
Oh, interesting. So 12, over 1,200 women right now we've identified, although we haven't finished going through all of them the second time and calling and, and placing them on along the timeline. Um, actors, directors, producers, screenwriters, editors, technology, sound, stunts, music, gossip columnists, films, critics, scholars, everything. Awesome. Cast, wardrobe, set design, camera women, all of it. Over 1,200 women so far. And that project is farther along than my other project, which I actually now have come to believe is incredibly important and will just take longer. And that's her story, A Timeline of the Women Who Changed Africa. Ooh, very good. That will be good. That will be good. So you see a series of these continuing to evolve from you over your lifetime. Is that, is that fair to say? I think that's probably fair to say. I don't know what the next one will be and if they each take five years. Right. <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, her story, the Africa book is going to take, there's, it's so hard to find the information. Right. And to put it together and to get it where it needs to go. But I've now gotten enough information that um, I, I did approach the UN last fall, but it was way too early and I understand that now. And I'm almost at a point, probably probably 2018, I'll be able to go to either UNESCO or some other agency within the UN and say, this is, what's, this is what we've put together. This is the information. I have three co-authors on that book, one formerly from South Africa, one formerly from Tunisia, and one formerly from Nigeria. Mm. That does sound like a really important book to write. Yeah. It, it's, it's really pretty amazing what I'm finding out and the information that exists or doesn't exist. There are not really, I mean, I think I own them, the five books that exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> On African women history. Uh-huh. So be, lots of space for that then. Yeah, lots but, of space. But nothing that's all of Africa, nothing that's, engaging and beautiful and um, validating. I mean, most of them are dictionary kinds of books and okay. or um, narrative books. Okay. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading them all. I think it's going to be fantastic. And I know you've already given us three pearls of wisdom with passion and determination and persistence, but any others you'd like to leave our audience today as we wrap up today? Well, what I say when I give up, I talk, and I think this is going to be helpful. Charlotte and I used a quote from Margaret Mead to start the introduction to our book. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Mm. And when I ask an audience what that means, they almost always get it. But my interpretation of those words is that it only takes one person to change the world and every person can be that one person. Right. Step up, just like you did in that very first room when someone said, who's going to nominate somebody to this award? And you stepped up into that. Right. And look what it opened up for you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So everyone has the possibility. You know, people say, oh, I can't do it. Well, actually, you can do it. This, right. this whatever needs to be changed. Every person has the ability 
to see that that change is made. So anyone who's listening, they might really just tune into, okay, what is it that I, you know, am so passionate about? What do I want to make change and then step into action with that? And every person listening can do that. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, as we're running out of time here, let's, um, can you tell us where people can learn more about you and your book? Absolutely. The website is www.herstoryatimeline.com. Mm-hmm. Written by Charlotte Waisman and Jill Teachin. And there's book club discussion guidelines on the website, educational resources, all kinds of information where I'll be speaking next. They can contact me if they want me to come speak to an organization that they're affiliated with. They can subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which generally profiles two women on a specific topic of my choosing. And then they can go on the Huffington Post, which I think is now called the Huff Post, and uh, see my blogs as well. And, and that, that has a feed into um, herstoryatimeline.com. Oh, awesome. 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 Well, Jill, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to interview you today. And thank you so much. Thank you. It's really been fun. Okay. Bye. I hope you liked this episode of Extraordinary Women Radio. If you did, please share this podcast with your own special tribe of women and help spread the love, the dreams, and the inspiration. Are you thinking about making the next bold move in your life? I invite you to take the Your Next Bold Move quiz at KamiGelner.com to find out how you can jumpstart a passionate and meaningful next chapter. You may also enjoy my book, Fire Dancer, Your Spiral Journey to a Life of Passion and Purpose, which is available on Amazon. In Fire Dancer, you will become intimately connected to your heart's calling and build the courage and resiliency to ignite your what's next. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media channels. I'm on both Facebook and Twitter, and the links are available on my website. Till next time, my friend, listen to your heart, follow your dreams, and be you.